Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, we'll do a deep dive into the grief recovery method's six grief myths. We'll talk about what they are, how they show up in our day-to-day lives, and why they really, really suck. Also on the show, a listener wants to know if it's healthy for people to track the time since their loved one died, and I'll share a personal story about rediscovering my voice after loss. Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone, because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, hello, my beautiful grief growers, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. I am so incredibly excited to let you know that as of this episode, Coming Back has been downloaded over 500 times. Thank you all so, so much for listening and for sharing this podcast with the people that you know. Uh, Keep on keeping on because everyone will experience loss and most of us will want to find our own way of coming back. And I just... I'm so excited. I can't thank you enough for tuning in today. So keep on listening, keep on sharing, and and always let me know what you think of the show. You can rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. You can message me on Facebook or on Instagram, or uh, just send me an email at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. I have so loved hearing all of your thoughts on the show, and, and your thoughts are what inspires me to create new segments and uh, new themes for the stories that come on to the show. So this is all for all of us in our own coming back. Today, I want to tell you a story from my own life. When we lose someone or something, when we experience loss, we expect what I'll call now as the obvious losses. So the person who died, the presence of your now former spouse in your home, the empty nursery, the empty dog bed, the empty chair at the table, Obvious losses are all the things that are directly related to the person or the thing that we lost, their presence in our lives, and the process of reshaping our lives to either avoid these new gaps or to compensate for them. When a loss happens, we also expect to lose our person to call when things get crappy, or our warm body to sleep next to at night, or the sound of clicking nails on hardwood. We know, we realize that these things aren't going to be there for us anymore. It sucks, but we can picture it. It happens. And we somehow accept it as our new reality. So when my mom died in 2013, I knew I was losing her physical form. I knew I'd never get to hug her again, or have her scratch my back as I leaned over the kitchen table after dinner, which was a ritual for us. I knew that she wouldn't be at my thesis presentation or my college graduation just six months later. I knew that when things got tough or hard or sad, and I just needed to call her, that I'd have to rely on other people, my sister or my aunts or just myself. 
I thought in losing her that I knew what I was going to lose. Until I lost my voice. And I don't mean here that I actually lost my voice. I don't mean that that one day I woke up with laryngitis and suddenly became mute. I mean, I lost my voice in the same way that you could say, I lost my passion, the energy that had propelled me and accompanied me all of my life to to love life and to sing it out or yell it out or cry it out, this life force that I had so long associated with me. That's what I lost. And that I had never, never expected. Grief rendered me silent and gray and dulled. I sang from duty and obligation and habit in my local choir. I internalized or I glossed over emotions like anger and frustration, and I cried. But it was this quiet shaking, alone in my bed at night. I filled a lot of my time with background noise like TV shows or movies or podcasts or just traffic from having the windows open. I remember the last time I used my voice and really meant it before my mom died. I was distraught and frantic and scared and anxious, and and the word I always want to use here is tormented. My mom was dying in her bedroom, in our house, and there was absolutely nothing that I could do about it. Every day we would wake up to a new prediction of the time that we had left from the hospice caretaker, and every day, more and more time was drastically shaved off. I think it was two or three days before she died, and and I just, I couldn't figure out what to do with myself. I had tried running, even in this gross December rain to get the energy out. I had tried eating, but I always felt nauseous. So that was always an ongoing battle with me and my body. And, and social media was an escape for a while, but it was so close to Christmas. I felt like my posts and my blogs and my calls for help were, were more of a downer and a burden than anything else. And, and people, my friends who were on break, they did the best that they could to help me. But I was still feeling this torment and this restlessness and this needing to release, to put all of this emotion that was building daily in my body, in my life. And what I wanted, what I really wanted was to run out in the woods somewhere. I didn't know where. I didn't, we didn't really have woods around us, but I wanted to run out into the woods and just shriek. I had never used this word before, but I, I wanted to scream and I wanted to curse and I wanted to yell at the, at the moon and the stars and at God and at nothing for putting me in this hell of a situation. I was 21 years old and I was losing my mom to a cancer we thought she had beaten. I was facing living the rest of my life without the stronghold of unconditional force that is maternal love. I was giving up every hope I ever had of reconciling my sexuality with my mom's religion while she was alive. And at the end of the day, I felt that I was being forced this deep, deep hole into an emotional place of of loneliness and abandonment and fear. And I held all of this inside. And I needed to get it out. I didn't know 
of any woods near my childhood home. The closest woods to us were at a park. And and the only thought going through my head was, oh God, I don't want the police called on me just for screaming because I'm inconsolably sad. Like how awful would that be in the midst of all this? So I did what I knew to be the next best thing. I got to the end of the day when my family was getting ready for bed and I told them where I was going and that it would be for a half hour or so. I just needed to get it out. And I went down the brick steps into our garage and I put myself in the passenger seat of my dad's truck and I locked the door. And I just screamed. I wish I could recreate this sound for you, grief growers. I wish I could. Think of every pained cry of loss in a movie combined with a dog whining for its owner, combined with the rage and the fury of a toddler whose favorite toy is being taken away. That's what I was. That's what I sounded like. That's how I was breaking. To this day, I, I remember wrapping my arms around my waist and almost choking my solar plexus because I felt my entire body breaking in half with the force of my screaming. It was absolutely magical and powerful and intense and extraordinary. I would scream until my head hurt, until I was out of tears, until I was convinced that God or some other divine force had hurt me. And then I went inside and I went to bed. Now, years later, I'm in awe of the release and the relief and the lightning that came from expressing all of those dark emotions through screaming. I was surprised that my voice, which had only before been employed for musicals and daily chit-chat and harmonizing with my friends in the car, could have this whole other expressive element to it, one that was much darker and much deeper, and more powerful. But those few nights in the truck leading up to my mom's death, that was the last time I really used my voice. That was the last time I was in touch with it. I didn't really notice that my voice had vanished when my mom died. There was so much else to focus on that I couldn't tell that it was gone. It was only after moving to Chicago seven months later, joining a choir, getting a job, starting new relationships, that I started to see that power, that lightness, the desire, and my voice was gone. Singing held no joy for me. Crying, despite the fact that it is a very wet process, was dry. And anger and pain and rage I had these locked away somewhere that that I had no idea how to begin to access. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about 
the obvious losses and the not so obvious losses. The obvious things are the things that we expect to lose. I expected to lose my mom and everything that she was attached to in my life, but to have her death attached to my power, my joy, my voice. That I I could have never expected. I could have never named that the moment she died that I would find myself voiceless a year later. And this manifests in so many different ways for us. This manifests in in everything from health to hobbies to to literal physical abilities. We think that somehow grief can't touch them. But but grief does. I think I started to recognize that my voice was gone just early last year, beginning of 2016. I noticed one morning that it had been a really long time since I'd sang in the shower. It had been a really long time since I spoke with passion about anything that I loved. And it had been a long time since that night in the truck, since I vocally grieved. I don't remember exactly when it was, But I remember one night in my little studio apartment above a sports bar. I was on my knees. I was just kneeling in front of my dresser where I had made this makeshift altar for my mom. And I was feeling overwhelmingly lonely. I was missing her. I was missing what my life was supposed to look like with her in it. And I was just sad. As I was sitting there with my eyes closed, trying so hard to feel for some sense of her, for some visual that I could grasp onto, I heard this little voice that said, why don't we sing about it? And immediately it was followed by, what good would that do? My intellectual brain. Could I actually sing my way through pain? But somehow that night, I don't know if I was tired or at my wit's end or just out of options, but I internally shrugged. Maybe I externally shrugged. I'm not even sure. But I remember I just felt like, you know, what the hell? Let's give it a shot. And so with cracking in my throat, And with lots of mumbling and humming and trying to find my way, I started singing a quiet song. Kneeling right there on my floor in front of my mom and a lit candle. I was creating chord progressions and melodies and verses as I sang. It it wasn't a song that I knew, but somehow that was okay. And the chorus, I kept coming back to, (laughs) coming back to, was, of all things, come home. Come home. That was my voice's message to me that night, and the door I was looking to be opened for me. I didn't even know how tightly grief had closed it. 
I didn't even know what I could do to get it back open again. We always assume these stories of coming back from grief and loss have to be hugely manifested or planned and executed in advance, or we have to make space for them in our calendars and our brains. But with my story and the stories of so many others I'm collecting for this show, coming back often starts in these small, quiet moments where grief is just pressing on you and pressing on you. And the last thing left to do is what you've never thought of before. It's reaching for that dusty book. It's talking to that old friend or mentor. It's coming home to yourself by rediscovering what you didn't realize you had lost. Finding your voice. In finding my voice through song, that one night, I began to find my voice again in the weeks and months that followed. I remember very distinctly crying out in rage and frustration and anger when my wallet was stolen in April. Sobbing openly on the phone with my family about how much I still missed my mom. And my very favorite, feeling that lightness of heart and transcendence of time. Just by singing again. Suddenly songs were speaking to me again. And I knew I was one step closer on my coming back journey. We don't honor our voices enough in the grieving process. Funerals and memorials and services and grief in general is often more silent than loud, only punctuated or interrupted by the occasional group song. But back in the day, and especially in Ireland, the practice of keening, vocally grieving, was all the rage. Women and mystics and friends of the family were actually paid to attend funerals to vocally express their grief over a death. They brought forth this sound of not only what they were feeling, but what everyone was feeling internally. And that stuff is powerful. It's unfortunate that that practice was stopped by the Catholic Church, who at the time didn't rightfully honor grief or women at its services. What I want to leave you with in this opening segment, Grief Growers, is this idea, this knowledge that there will be things grief takes from you that you never expected to lose. They will be parts of yourself. And they are important. And you might not even realize they're gone until they've been gone for a while. Playing an instrument, hiking, writing, singing, whatever it is. What in your life did you never expect to lose as a result of grief? What about you that has always been true is now missing? How are you rediscovering it? How are you calling your voice back home? With softness, power, and song this week. Let's start coming back. 
Up next, I'll answer a listener question on whether or not it's normal to keep track of time after a loss. My name is Rachel from Arlington, Virginia. I've noticed that a lot of people I know, especially people who seem stuck in their grief, are really obsessed with counting the days since their loved one has died. One man I know even posts on a Craigslist forum every day with the number of days it's been since his wife died. Is this healthy? What do you think about this focus on numbers and people we love being gone? Thanks. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for calling in. Uh, I want to touch on a couple of things that you brought to light in your question. First of all, yes, it is completely healthy and completely normal for people to want to mark time after a loss. Uh, In the last episode of Coming Back, I talked about the importance of ritual and how acknowledging special days like birthdays or anniversaries or death days and just any other time markers can be helpful in the aftermath of loss. Um, For some people, I notice that time is a really important element in coming back because not only does it mark how many days, months, or years they've gone without their loved one, it also helps them to reflect on the progress that they've made in their lives since then. You mentioned Craigslist specifically as a place to mark time, but people use all kinds of social media to mark time. And the frequency, days, weeks, months, years, is always, always, always up to the person who the loss happened to. And no one else can decide how that's supposed to look. Many people even form communities online to mark days together, and that's a way of connecting uh, in the process of coming back. I get the sense, though, from your call that what you're picking up on or noticing in the people around you is a one-sided expression of time as in they're only focused on the amount of time that their loved one has been gone. And um, as I was answering your question, I got this visual of somebody looking backwards at a closed door and literally counting every day. It's been 586 days since that door has been closed. And what they're not seeing is that while the door of their loved one's life is closed, there are so many other doors in their life to explore. There are doors of of memories, doors of introspection, doors of new adventures, doors of connection. But from the sound of your question, it sounds like the focus for them seems to stay on everything they've lost and not the the multitude of ways that they can incorporate that loss into their lives going forward. It's kind of funny because hearing your question, I'm hearing that it's not even an obsession or a focus on numbers. It's an obsession and a focus on loss or losing. I think there is room for concern when this marking of time is accompanied by inactivity, by no momentum, by nothing. Like you said in your question, being stuck. Here, I'm talking about people who've fallen victim to one or more of the three Ps that we talked about in episode two. Um, There's personalization, which is this is all my fault. Pervasiveness, this loss affects all areas of my life. Or permanence, this is the way I'm going to feel about it forever. And Sometimes losses can can seem so big or so tragic or so life-shattering that to the people who have lost, it seems like there is no way to come back. They believe that their loss has made them a victim or has ruined their future or is this insurmountable obstacle in their life. So what they do is they just keep marking time since their loss because in a way, 
their life before that time started, before that clock started, is the life that they still wish that they were living. And one of the hard truths about coming back is that it's a path that people have to choose for themselves. No one can tell anybody else when or why or how to come back. You can't tell your friend who lost his wife to stop focusing on the numbers until he decides to himself. Uh, Because coming back is a personal decision that people make when they decide that living in that looking backwards at the door forever life is more scary than seeing what's still out there in the world for them to experience what other doors exist. So if somebody hasn't consciously decided for themselves to start coming back from their loss, their marking of time can definitely appear obsessive or stagnant or stuck, especially if you're someone who's observing it every day. And if you still want to be friends with this person and all the other people in your life who are obsessively marking time, quote unquote, obsessively marking time, it's a piece of their story that comes along with them right now. And that's something you have to decide whether or not you want to continue to experience. Um, What I might do in this situation where you're interacting with someone who's marking time without actively moving forward is a visualization I created in one of my online courses called How to Be Present with Others' Pain. It's a tool that I use when I encounter people who seem content where they are in their grief, or even people who know that they're going to come back eventually, but they haven't quite gotten to that place for themselves yet. They're still expressing some um, some habits that they know aren't great for them, but just haven't decided to take those steps into coming back. And what it does is it just puts this little cushion of space between my presence and theirs. So I don't feel like I'm absorbing uh, the pain and the heartbreak of focusing only on looking back, of focusing on the loss. It also helps me from putting on those really crummy judgment glasses and demanding that people be in a place to wake up and come back when that whole decision is entirely out of my power. Um, So you can find that course if you're interested. It's called How to Be Present with Others' Pain at shelbyforsythia.com and you can click online courses to access it. I'll tell you, Rachel, and thank you so much again for your question, that the best way to support your grieving, time-marking friends is both to listen and to show them an example of what a life of coming back looks like. I am sure you have had your own losses, and I'm sure you mark time in your own way. So working through those losses and honoring time in a way that feels healthy for you is a really great start, because a life like that often prompts people to ask, what are you doing? What are your tricks? And that opens uh, a conversation for you to not only start talking about loss, but talking about time in relation to loss and, and what really feels good for everybody involved. If you've had a conversation with someone who seemed more focused on looking back than moving forward, let us know how you navigated it. Leave a voicemail for the show at 312-725-3043, just like Rachel did, or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. We would all love to learn from your experience. You can also ask your own question to be featured on the show, again, by leaving a voicemail at 312 725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. And as always, you can find both of these contacts in the show notes. Next up, we'll explore the grief recovery method's six grief myths and how they prevent us from coming back. everybody. So let's get to the meat of today's show, the six grief myths and why they suck. 
These myths come from the Grief Recovery Method Handbook, which was super influential in my own coming back, so much so that I got certified to teach this method to people on their own coming back journeys, and it has been so, so powerful. The six grief myths are just one teeny tiny piece of the grief recovery method. They're a list of the most unhelpful things people believe will help them through loss, but actually and simply don't work. And I'll tell you, they're very much a once you see, you can't unsee them kind of tool. As in, once you're aware that they exist, you'll start seeing them everywhere. You'll start seeing them in movies, you'll see them on TV, you'll see them in your day-to-day life, even with interactions with other people. Uh, I actually took a poll in my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, and it turns out you can have experienced the grief myths without even knowing what they are. It's kind of wild. So let's jump into what they are. The first one I want to talk about with you is keep busy. This is a biggie in our Western culture that glorifies busyness and sees standing still or resting as a waste of time. This shows up post-loss when people tell you it'll do you good to get you out of the house. I'm so glad you have work to keep your mind off things. Or do you want a distraction? We could do X, Y, or Z. While all of the grief myths are well-intentioned, they are not helpful when it comes to actually addressing the root cause of grief, which is a broken heart. At the end of the day, after all your working and all your socializing and all your exercising and all your distracting, you're still heading to bed with a broken heart. The big lie in the myth of keep busy is that somehow all of this external activity will heal the immense pain that your loss has dealt you. But it doesn't. In the words of the grief recovery method, busyness only makes one more day go by. The second grief myth I want to talk about is be strong. Oh, I absolutely loathe this myth, grief growers, because it is so, so common. Be strong comes out in all kinds of ways. There's literally, you have to be strong for your mother or brother or sister now, whoever it is in your situation. But there's also, I have to hold the family together. They need me not to fall apart. This is just part of my job. I signed up for this. And of course, the gendered, I never saw my dad cry, so I won't either. This is yet another case of well-intentioned but extremely not helpful advice, because what does being strong do to your broken heart? Do you guys have any guesses? It puts up walls. Yeah. Because all being strong does, quote unquote, being strong, is ensures that you don't show the vast array of emotions that is so warranted and so valid during a time of heartbreak. All being strong does is force those feelings down into you, and they can manifest in a lot of ways. Physical illness, anxiety, depression, using behaviors like drinking, smoking, food, or sex to cope. The list goes on and on. How many quote-unquote strong people do you know that have a vice or a habit that haunts them? Grief always comes out some other way. The third myth I want to talk about is don't feel bad. This one is actually a myth that's a little bit sneakier in the way that it shows up. Don't feel bad can literally be don't feel bad, will XYZ. But it can also be there, there, don't cry. It'll all be all right. There's no use crying over spilt milk. It's okay. There are plenty of fish in the sea. Feeling bad won't change what's happened. And just think, 
God doesn't close one door without somewhere opening a window. What do we do when our infant children are crying? We literally pat them and rock them and say, don't cry. This starts early, you guys. Don't feel bad as a myth is where a ton of platitudes come from. Don't feel bad just like the rest of the grief myths comes from a place of well intention. But to a broken heart, it reads, stuff your emotions or don't show them to us. Feeling bad isn't productive, so feel better. And why can't you just be grateful? There is a lot of negative emotion shaming going on in this myth. We think that telling people not to feel bad or by telling them to feel better, it actually helps them to feel better. But guess what? It doesn't. It only tells them that negative emotions like feeling bad, sad, or mad are not okay and they need to display some other more positive emotion to be acceptable. Have you ever felt bad for feeling bad but couldn't tell anybody you were feeling bad because you know they would tell you not to feel bad? That is the awfulness of this third grief myth. The fourth grief myth is time heals all. I love that I answered a question on time earlier in this episode because as so many of you know, it is not time that heals, it's what you do with it. If you spend your time focused on the things that you lost, healing is not taking place. If you spend your time focused on digging deep into your loss and reflecting on it and releasing it and discovering new ways to incorporate it into your life, healing is probably taking place. But see, the quote-unquote healing factor here is not time. It's what you do with it. So many grievers believe that if they just let milestones pass, six months, one year, five years, ten years, that they'll start to feel better about everything that's happened. And in some ways, their lives look like they've shifted back to normal, but without directed conscious action toward coming back and healing and recovery, all that time is doing nothing for them. Yes, time can give you perspective. Time can give you peace. Time can give you healing, but not all by itself. And that, grief growers, is the big myth of grief myth number four. The fifth myth of grief is to grieve alone. This one absolutely breaks my heart. Almost nobody says grieve alone, but have you ever heard, if you're going to cry, go to your room. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. Just give them some space. Or maybe she just needs some alone time. Of course you've heard these things. The big myth of grieve alone is that some magical healing takes place by us spending some time by ourselves. But the message it really passes on is that grief is something to hide away or conceal. We don't watch each other grieve and that grieving together isn't an option. How many fights don't get resolved because partners storm off and don't talk, thinking their alone time will fix their pain? How many friendships end because one friend is grieving and the other friend believes that pain is so much more easily handled alone? How many children are sent to cry in their rooms so they don't bother the rest of the family with their emotions? Grieve alone isolates us from others and ourselves. It makes our pain an outlier and asks us to try to heal in a way that isn't normal for us, closed off, 
and separate. Grieve alone can make us feel like we're not allowed to reach out, and we can't even if we want to. The last grief method I want to touch on is replace the loss. Replace the loss is another grief myth that's meant to make us feel better, but really just covers up everything that's causing us pain. Most often, it's used in the case of pet loss, as in, don't worry, we'll get you a new dog, or cat, or bird, or fish, or turtle. But here's the thing, a new pet won't change the fact that you lost your old one. A new job won't change the fact that you were let go from your previous one. A new boyfriend won't change the fact that you just divorced your husband. The message that's sent through Replace the Loss is that relationships are interchangeable. When a child's best friend moves away, it's, well, why don't you play with your classmate Katie instead? When a beloved dog dies, it's, that's okay. We'll go to the shelter and pick out a new one next week. When a favorite grandmother dies, it's, that's all right. You've still got your grandma on your dad's side. Replace the loss perpetuates the lie that one relationship can be substituted for another, that one dog will fill the same space as another dog, that one friend can fill the same space as another friend, that one love is the same as another. But if you really think about it, it's not true. The Grief Recovery Handbook says all relationships are unique and different, even Two people who know the same person have a different relationship with that person. How can we even think of replacing a loss when we haven't honored the first relationship that was there to begin with? All replace the loss does is leave us searching for pets or jobs or people or dreams to fill the space of the first pets or jobs or people or dreams that we lost. But unfortunately, that is a maddening and impossible goal. So these are the six grief myths brought to you by the grief recovery method. And I know what you're thinking. All right, Shelby, you've just told me six big things not to believe in about grief and loss. So what should I believe in? Kudos to you. You're asking all the right questions. So I'll give you three things to believe in. First, believe in the fact that all relationships are unique and different. Don't expect people to feel the same way about a loss just because they knew the parties involved. Everyone experiences and expresses loss differently. That being said, the second thing you should believe, instead, is that grief is a normal and natural expression of human emotion. It's not something to be fixed or analyzed or criticized or sent to its room. The best thing that you can do for grief is to let it out in the open, whether that's in your living room, in the break room at work, or just in the woods near your house. Third, I want you to believe that people are doing the best that they can with their grief. I think I mentioned in the last episode with self-love that believing we're doing the best that we can all the time puts us in this mentality of healthy self-love instead of tearing ourselves down or tearing others down for the way they're coping. Believe that what you're doing is right for you and that what other people are doing is right for them. And if for some reason hearing these grief myths or hearing this podcast today, you feel that what you're doing actually isn't right for you, believe that you have the power to change what you're doing. I have the utmost faith in you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Remember this week to find your voice. 
what did grief take from you that you never expected to lose? It's up to you to call it home in your own way. If you're a friend of someone who's grieving, check out my online course, How to Be Present with Others' Pain at shelbyforsythia.com. Just click online courses. Let us know what you thought of the six grief myths. Where do you see them in your life? Who have you heard them from? Call in and leave us a voicemail at 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. Thank you always, always, always to Mr. Eddie Goldstein for composing our music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. As always, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. <laughs>